TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. I'm placing a personal bounty on the head of Tim McCracken. He's the coach and chief punk on that Syracuse team. A, a bounty? Yeah. A hundred bucks of my own money for the first of my men that really nails that creep. It's Saturday Suckage on 670 The Score in Odyssey Station. Come on, you all know it. Reg Dunlop, putting a bounty. You can't put a bounty on I just did. Tim Dr. Hook McCracken, coach and chief punk of that Syracuse team. Welcome and welcome back. That, of course, is from Slapshot. This, of course, is Steve Rosenblum. Guest Hotline, presented by Circus Sports Illinois. We welcome back to the show the man who wrote the book, The Making of Slapshot, Jonathan Jackson. Jonathan, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Steve. I appreciate the call. Thank you. So the reason that that particular clip was played was Dr. Hook, Tim McCracken, the actor who played him, Paul D'Amato, passed away. It was a sad day. It's a time of mourning, but we get still get to celebrate Slapshot. But for those of us who, I mean, the most, he had one of the most special faces. And I know that it was, and we look at that and we say, okay, there's a face, there's Dr. Hook and all that. But for you, it was a whole different deal. And I wanted you to share that with the class, the story, the connection, how the book got done. For sure, and but before I get into that, uh, the the face that you mentioned, um, Ned Tannen, who was the head of Universal Studios and and gave the green light to the picture, he he told me that was that uh, Paul D'Amato had the maddest face he'd ever seen, which I thought was a great <laughs> quote. So I made sure it's in the book. But uh, Paul was completely not like the character he played. He was a very very warm and friendly person. Um, I was privileged to, to call him a friend. And I met him in 2006 at a uh, charity golf tournament, uh, a slap shot cast reunion slash charity golf tournament uh, near Toronto. And I was talking to the cast members. I originally had it in mind that I would write a magazine article about uh, the movie because it's been my favorite movie since since I was a kid. And talking to the various cast members who were there, there I think there were seven or eight of them um, at the at the event. And the stories were just so fascinating and they were coming at me so fast that it occurred to me that I was probably going to have way too much material to put in a magazine article. So while speaking with Paul, I and, and we were talking about this and, and I said, you know, has anybody ever written a book about Slapshot? And he said, no. And I said, well, maybe somebody should. And he just smiled at me and he said, maybe somebody should. And I got what he was, <laughs> I got what he was, uh, what he was laying down. And uh, so that's, that's where it started. He gave me the idea. He gave me the inspiration and, and my life changed at that moment. And I will forever be grateful to Paul D'Amato for that, uh, for that conversation. 
Jonathan Jackson is my guest. He wrote the book, The Making of Slapshot. I highly recommend it. I've read it several times. It's filled with joy and stories. And and the, the line we have in one of the segments I do in the cultural zeitgeist is the call and response that hockey players have. If you walk by somebody, maybe he's got hockey sticks. Maybe he's got a Chief jersey. It's always, who owned a Chief? And owns. Owns. Exactly right. That's what the other – a friend of mine who played hockey was walking into a rink. Somebody's walking out and may have had a piece of Chiefs merch on him, and he said that, and he got that response. And I thought that was just – that was so wonderful. And I know that the the goalie is a story that, that um, Denny Lemieux, who opens the – the movie is wonderful, explaining icing up and, you know, my arm go come up, the puck come yep. down, bang, play stop, then start up. And that that kind of um, that kind of writing was he was he was a story. These guys aren't I mean, I, I tell the Denny Lemieux story. Do you mean a Denny Lemieux story or the the actual hockey player that inspired Denny Lemieux? Yeah, that was I, – I think he was really the, – the the model for Denny Lemieux was hysterical. Yeah, the uh, the Johnstown Jets, who were the real-life team that the Charlestown Chiefs were based on, had a goalie by the name of Louis Levasseur. He played briefly in the uh, WHA for the Minnesota Fighting Saints. But before that, in Johnstown, he was the goalie who led the Jets to the 1975 North American Hockey League Championship. And to put it kindly, he was a bit of a flake, as a lot of goalies often are. That's mm-hmm. the stereotype, right? Yeah. Um, I was told that <laughs> at a team party, Louis dressed up in, in scuba diving gear and spent an inordinate amount of time you know, with, with a fishing pole and a lure trying to catch a bar of soap out of a fishbowl. That's like a goalie. Just... <laughs> Maybe one or too many, you know, hundred mile an hour slap shots to the head. I don't know, or maybe he was born that way. I I, I didn't get the chance to talk to him uh, to see what was up with that, but uh, he was very much a character. And uh, Yvonne Barrett, who played Denny Lemmy in the movie, also a very warm, kind, friendly man. Probably nothing like that in real life. I don't think anybody could really be like that. I think Louis Levasseur was probably a one of a kind. Uh, goalie and human being my guest is jonathan jackson he wrote the book the making of Slapshot." it's filled with terrific stories and as you talk about initially gathering talking to cast members were there who did you find either the most with the most information the the the, the funniest and who who refused to talk to you um the only person who refused to talk to me was nancy dowd the screenwriter um, I tried to get word, get a message to her through a couple of intermediaries, and she was quite blunt that she did not want to talk to me. Um, there were other people that I simply couldn't track down. I I would like to think that if I could have tracked them down, they would have said yes, but I couldn't, so that's just the way it went. Um, probably the biggest surprise that I got was Brad Sullivan, who played uh, Mo Wanchuk, the uh, deliciously lecherous Mo Wanchuk. Mo, Morris, you make me sick. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's the guy. But he um, was a born-again Christian, very devout Christian, and the word that I had gotten was that 
he considered the movie blasphemous and he did not want to talk about it. He wanted to forget that he'd ever done the movie. So I was quite surprised when I actually managed to get him and it was actually near the end of his life and he, he'd gotten philosophical about the movie and he still thought it was uh, blasphemous, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he, but he'd, uh, he'd come to uh He'd come to a feeling of peace with it, I guess. He and and so he was willing to talk about it, and uh, and so it, it was quite a nice surprise to to get him and to be able to talk with him about it. I, I think he kind of saw it for what it was. I think in the heat of the moment, he he felt a little embarrassed about the things that he said and did, which came as a surprise to his fellow cast members because things like the tongue wagging, the things that would come out of his mouth, apparently a lot of that, like he just threw himself into. Like when he committed to the part, he committed to the part. <laughs> and so and I remember Jennifer Warren, who played uh, Reggie's uh, estranged wife, Francine. She told me that, you know, I think the quote, and it's in the book, was that uh, he made himself the scummiest of scumbags. <laughs> yeah. But, but he, and he, and he threw himself right into it. He was, he was committed to the part. Whatever misgivings he might have had during the filming, he obviously set them aside. And like I said, towards the end of his life, he did sort of come to terms with the role and and how it was going to far outlive him, which it has. But uh, that that to me was the biggest surprise, you know, to to be able to get Brad Sullivan to to talk with me about the movie because from what I had been told, he would not do it. My guest is Jonathan Jackson. The book is the making of Slapshot, and it's always that's the kind of movie. For me, the greatest sports movie ever. I will not be taking questions on the matter. But the it kind of like like Godfather 1 and 2 and Goodfellas is if it starts, if I catch it in the middle, I'm going to keep watching it. And and I think that's the way it is for a lot of people. There may be some people new coming to this. When you mention Nancy Dowd as the screenwriter, I, I want to connect the dots for people that her brother was central to – the story and especially the dialogue share with the class those stories absolutely so ned dowd was a hockey player from massachusetts he'd gone to college uh then he went to mcgill university in montreal and he had designs on being a pro hockey player so he uh, signed a free agent contract with the st louis blues who sent him to their affiliate team the johnstown jets and he, he did pretty well there, but unfortunately, he had grown up in an environment where there wasn't much fighting. And as he told me, it wasn't that he was really opposed to fighting. He just wasn't very good at it, so he didn't do it. But anyway, the Jets got off to a lousy start in 1974-75. And Ned got drunk one night and was talking with Nancy on the phone, his older sister. And she was a budding screenwriter living out in California. And... He thought he expressed to her that he thought the team thought that they might fold because they were doing so poorly. And she threw out a question to him, which you've already alluded to, you know, who owns the Jets? And Ned didn't know. For whatever reason, it wasn't a secret in town who owned the team, but Ned didn't know. And according to Nancy, and I got some uh, archival information that allowed me to make sure her voice was in the story, even if she wouldn't speak to me personally. She said that when he told her that, that was that was it. Her mind was made up. She was going to go to Johnstown to see what her brother had gotten himself into. So she did. She met his team and was completely enthralled by the people she met and the things that she saw and heard. And 
So she decided she was going to write this movie. So when she hung around with the Jets for a few weeks, when she left to go back to California, she left a tape recorder with Ned and asked him to tape, you know, the atmosphere um, in and around the dressing room um, just in their general lives. And the Jets knew what was going on. And, you know, Ned would just kind of turn on the tape recorder and they would just banter as they normally did. Ned would send the cassette tapes to Nancy and she would write. And within a very short time, she had turned the Johnstown Jets into the Charlestown Chiefs. And I'm talking with Jonathan Jackson. He wrote the book, The Making of Slapshot. And it's, again, a terrific book. Great about the best sports movie. It's so much fun that that part of it with what Ned did, what Nancy did, the Athletic recent this week wrote a story on the Johnstown Jets, the team that the Charlestown Chiefs were on which they were modeled, and it seemed like we heard from the real Dickie Dunn, just trying to capture the spirit of it. Oh, you did, you did, <laughs> and the 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 real Jets who were models for for that, and to finish the, the, the Ned Dowd part. Ned Dowd, who didn't believe in fighting and wasn't brought up in that, he played Ogie Oglethorpe. If you wonder what this guy looks like, he was Ogie Oglethorpe in the movie, the most heinous, scariest, most primitive player on the ice. Even And so the, the real people seemed, in reading your book and then reading, pairing it again with, with the athletic story, the... She just she changed a lot of names, just switched uniforms, and used a lot of real people in the movie. Am I right? I mean, I'm not sure what's made up and what's real life. You're absolutely right. And if you've ever ever had the chance to see a Johnstown Jets uh, jersey from that era, it's it's the same as the Chiefs. All they did was take Jets off the front and put Chiefs in its place. It's uh. <laughs> and, and pretty much all of the uniforms in that movie, and, and they even got North American Hockey League players to, to be in the movie as extras. And so it was filmed like in the spring of 1976, like both during and after the NHL season. And most of the teams wore sweaters that were modeled after NAHL sweaters. So it was very much an in-joke of, for that league at that time. Now, the league didn't last very long. It came out. It was one of the offshoots of the old Eastern League. Uh, it started in 1973. It folded in 1977. So it wasn't around very long. And this movie is just like basically like a picture postcard of what that league was and what it was like. Um, the uh, Syracuse Bulldogs. They wore the jersey of a team from Quebec called the Bos Jaros. And you know it, it, anybody who knew the league, you know, would recognize those sweaters instantly and would recognize the players instantly. A handful of Jets, namely the, the the Hanson brothers, you know, were able to play in the movie for the Chiefs and for other teams in the league. It was uh, including Bruce Bruce Boudreau. He played for the Johnstown Jets, and he's very visible in in the movie as well. Yes, he did his clowning act, and now he does his clowning <laughs> act behind yeah. NHL benches in playoffs. So, Jonathan Jonathan Jackson is my guest. He wrote the book The Making of Slapshot. We have textures weighing in here. One from 309 said, and you go to the box and you feel much shame, and then you get free. Then you get free. Danny Lemieux, yeah. 
Three one two texter. It, 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 it really, it re- this, this lingo, it really is like our own secret handshake, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and a three one two texter asked the question: Where did the idea for the foil come from? You mentioned the Hanson brothers putting on the foil, Coach. So, so the Hansons uh, have denied that they wore foil on their hands. Although you know Dick Roberge, who was the coach of the Jets, and and also played a referee in the movie, he's the referee who says does the too much too soon line. That's Dick Roberge. He was the coach of the Jets. He he said that they did wear foil, even though the Hansons denied it. Um, other other people said the same. What uh, what Dave Hanson told me was that they would wear golf gloves. They would uh, soak these leather golf gloves, uh, leave them on the radiator to dry, and then slip them on before and before a game. But he said you had to drop your gloves and you had to fight on the first shift because your hands would sweat and that would soften the the leather up again. But so the <laughs> but hard you, leather would create a rough exterior, better to which draw blood. Absolutely, and and because they were wet and and hardened, you know, it was like. It was like basically like tape on a boxer's hands, and you know that. And he said that that's what they would use. Although, again, as I say, Dick Roberge and other people say that they did in fact wear wear foil on their hands. Um, I, I I have to say that must be true because I can't imagine Nancy would have had the idea to just make that up out of thin air, especially since she had no hockey background to speak of. Somebody had to have worn foil on their hands, and so that's where we get. Uh, putting on the foil every game. Before I let you go, mentioning the, the Hanson brothers that um, they'd gone through, Steve had gone through some tough times and I, I knew he had to go fund me tough times health wise. And I knew he had Mm -hmm. to go fund me set up. I don't know what the status of it is. Do you keep up with that? Do you know? Um, I I think his health is back. He had a, uh, uh, a cancer fight that he went through. Uh, His brother, Jeff Carlson also had a cancer fight before that. Uh, they, they both came through. Steve then had a biking accident, uh, I guess, several months ago. And, you know, another setback. I, th- I think uh, he said some tough times, but he seems to be bouncing back and he seems to be he seems to be OK. I haven't spoken to him in quite a long time, but I, I think he's doing all right now. Well, we hear this weekend, we believe Chris Jellios could have been a Charlestown chief. He could he could oh, chop, he could be a lumberjack with the best of them. He could have been that guy. <laughs> Jonathan, absolutely. I appreciate your time. Always great talking. Slapshot with the man who wrote the book, The Making Thank of you. Slapshot. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Steve. And if anybody is interested in a copy, they can uh, visit my website, doublejmedia.ca. There's a link a link there to uh, click to Amazon to uh, buy the book. I just uh, republished it uh, last fall. It was out of print for many years, but I've uh, republished it on my own, and it's available for any fans who uh, who uh, want to get a copy. Excellent. Good luck. Thank you, Jonathan. All right. Thank you, Steve. Take care. Jonathan Jackson, the making of Slapshot. Go to his website. It's been redone, a little added to it, and I love talking Slapshot. Greatest sports movie of all time. Love. And the stories are terrific in that book. And it was all prior. It's sad. It was a mournful note that <clears throat> Dr. Hook, Tim, Dr. Hook McCracken passed away this week. But he was the, he was the guy nudging Jonathan forward with the idea of the book. And there we have it. We have all wonderful stories. And it was great. So we're going to take a break. And so sometimes, sometimes you start with a ranking of a baseball team's prospects. 
and you go up, you go down, you go here, you go there, you go down a rabbit hole about quarterbacks in the NFL draft, and you come up with the phrase, yoga practicing farmer. Next, on Saturday Suckage, I'm Steve Rosenblum, Chicago Sports Radio 670, The Score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. I mean, heavy hitters this weekend. I know we won't talk about weekend programming that, you know, many more times. Bob Costas was on Saturday Suckage with Rosenblum. Costas then questioned, wow, why am I on a show called Saturday Suck? They've got to know each other. I mean, I assume so. They have to. You think he was just on by happenstance? He's got he's to know. It's Saturday Suckage on 670 The Score in Odyssey Station. Yes, he does. He knows Bob Costas. Talked to him many times on the air and in print. Add it all together. I mean, he was central to Chicago. He was. He still gets questions from 1984 event, the Sandberg game. He'll walk down the street. Hey, Bob, the Sandberg game. So he called that when the game where Whitey Herzog would call him Baby Ruth after Sandberg hit two home runs off Bruce Suter. And in 1998, he called Michael's last shot as a bull. We've had that. We play that at some point regularly, or not regularly, but at some point we played that about. And so he's central, and here he was. He was doing that. So I had many reasons to talk to Bob Costas. And when I did it, when I was writing out loud pieces for the Tribune like 20 years ago, and it was just Q&A, and, and it was a, a conversation. I just left me out, and the subject's answers were there. One of them started with, the, the, the whole conversation started with Bob Costas. Robbie, do you have any idea what that means? No, but I laughed. Yes. Well, to some of us, it's a legendary SNL skit. And Costas was in NBC Tower. He happened to be walking through whatever happened, and he he was Bob Costas. And everybody started talking like that. And everybody would like to go to Tampa Bay and have a burrito. And that was the whole sketch. That's what it was. So he had a story. As soon as I said Bob Costas, he was going to go there. And we talked about... Well, you, had, you did TV, so what about your movie career? And he will cite as <clears throat> part of his movie career, his former, he had a, show, a late night talk show. And it was in the background in a movie, the name of which escapes me, where the, what should have been the central character is lying dead on her bed. And, or she's asleep. I can't remember which, but she's not moving. She's not awake. And his show is playing, and so he takes that as confirmation that he was boring people to death and to sleep, at least. 
So yeah, Bob Costas, who gave us a wonderful addition to our roll call. I also don't understand, or maybe I should just applaud you for having the self-confidence to label your own show Saturday Suckage. It's public service, Bob. I suck so you don't have to. No applause necessary. So we're, we're, we're going to spend time. We continue to spend time. Justin Fields, Caleb Williams, and, 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 and just a couple things in, in no particular order. I don't need the Bears. I don't, want, I don't need the Bears to draft Caleb Williams. I need them to draft the quarterback with the greatest upside. If, that's, if they determine that's Caleb Williams, good. If they determine it's Jaden Dend, fine. Whoever it is, that's the guy. There was some discussion. I think it was Bernstein and Holmes, and I was listening to, and, and it came from a texture, and they were kicking the idea around, and it's understandable. That, well, if Justin Fields or Caleb Williams isn't the starting quarterback for the Bears next year, the, the city will burn. Well, the city's already burned, and it had nothing to do with the quarterback. But I, I don't need that. I need the guy with the highest upside. And I still, I was still lobby for keeping Justin Fields keeping Tyson Bajan, and keeping whoever they drafted number one on the bench. I don't really expect them to win the Super Bowl, even though a lot of teams go worse to first. They'll have the advantage of a last-place schedule, but they had that this year, and they won seven games. Four teams they beat fired their coaches, so they really won three games. That's the way I look at it. My math. But we're going to keep arguing about this. <clears throat> and nobody knows anything about quarterbacks, really, and the – Maybe Andy Reid, maybe Kyle Shanahan. But that's what I came down to. And then I saw this list, Chai Sox fan Mike. He tweeted a screenshot from Pipeline.com of White Sox prospects at a, at a particular time. I'll read them to you. Not to make you throw up, but I'll read them to you. Moncada apparently was healthy enough to make the list. Jimenez, apparently he was healthy enough to make the list. Kopech, apparently he was healthy enough to make the list. Robert Giolito, Lopez, Rutherford, Fulmer, Cease, and Zach Collins. And Chai Sox fan Mike's comment was, where did it go wrong, man? Which is an excellent question. And And I'm thinking, well, what we're doing in this city is talking about quarterbacks, so you could ask the same thing. What, where, where did it, where could it go wrong? So you look at Caleb Williams, J.J. McCarthy, Drake May, Bo Nix, Michael Penix, Jaden Daniels, someone else, compare, contrast. Baseball, baseball prospect rankings versus quarterback rankings. Really? I'm right? Discuss. So here's a list. Here's a history. Taken 18th by the Jets. Chad Pennington Marshall, quarterback Chad Pennington, taken 65th by the 49ers. This is all the same draft. Giovanni Carmazzi of Hofstra, 65th, 49ers. Taken 75th by the Ravens, Chris Redman of Louisville. Taken 163rd by the Steelers, T. Martin of Tennessee. Taken 168th. By the Saints, Mark Bulger of West Virginia. Taken 183rd by the Browns, Bergen Wynn out of Minnesota. Taken 190th 
by the Patriots out of Michigan, yes, Tom Brady. The six quarterbacks taken behind before Brady started 191 games and threw 258 touchdowns. Brady won 268 games in, of, on his own, including seven Super Bowls, threw 737 touchdowns, combining the regular season and playoffs. So Yahoo ran a piece on these quarterbacks, the six taken ahead of Tom Brady. These are always things to do, right? There'll be two taken ahead of Patrick Mahomes, and your Bears quarterback, Mr. Trubisky, will be one of them. But he's going to turn off all the TVs so he won't have to see any reports on this. But this is an extreme example about nobody knows nothing. That's what the Brady year is. I'm admitting I have biased the whole thing. And this was long before the NFL rigged it so quarterbacks you know, can't be touched and they're all going to be record-setting and they're all going to be great and defensive linemen have to count to three before they can rush. But I still believe, even in this era, even in this environment, NFL people know very little about picking the right quarterback. And the Bears are sitting here picking the right quarterback. Trying to pick the right quarterback. Not knowing they picked the right quarterback. What kind of work do they have to do to get the right quarterback? Is Justin Fields the right quarterback? Doesn't look like it. I've seen enough to know I've not I've seen too much. But Caleb Williams, he's smaller. He's like, okay, well, what do you project? He's got a lot to work on. They all do. He'd be better off sitting for a year. Does he have the mentality to sit for a year if that's what the Bears wanted him to do? Ryan Poles was in Kansas City when they did that to Mahomes. And I think that it that's the program I want to see. The Bears tried this with Mitch Trubisky, and they tried it with Justin Fields. But between suck of Mike Glennon and injury to Andy Dalton, the first-round quarterbacks had to play. They didn't have to, but they were chosen to play. If Justin Fields sticks around and gets hurt and the Bears have drafted, say, Caleb Williams, Tyson Bajan better be here because when Justin Fields gets hurt, because you know he will, because he always does, and that's just the way he plays, then Tyson Bajan better go in and Caleb Williams can just be chained. But does he have the mentality, the emotional strength to stay chained to the bench? Could he? handle it i don't know bears have to know we know so little about these guys as people that you hope the bears do a better job than what we know and if we know as much as they do these guys should all be fired but i got two things out of this yahoo piece that i just cited the quarterbacks from because it was a where are they now kind of thing two of them made me smile mark bulger i mentioned his name he didn't he didn't make the Saints roster his rookie year, but eventually caught on with the Rams and was there for eight seasons before he spent one year with the Ravens as a backup. He made $55.4 million in his career. Nine seasons. Fifty. That's, that's Chase Daniel. That's, that's doing better than Chase Daniel. That's it being an ATM Hall of Famer. Bulger now runs a foundation. Because it was where are they now? They caught up with. And has gotten involved in, wait for it, curling. Yeah, sure. Mark Bulger, taken out of one of the Virginia schools. Curling. 
But this was the best. I mentioned Gio Carmazzi. You, you never heard of him, have you? No? Robbie, you had no idea. No, not at all. Well, he never played a game in the NFL. Good. I was right. He spent two years in the 49ers practice squad. He later played in WLAF, the World League of American Football, and in the Canadian Football League. He once described himself to ESPN as, quote, a yoga practicing farmer in California who has five goats and doesn't own a TV. Brady became the goat, and he just owns them. There you go. Look at that. He got all of it. Gio Carmazzi, I love you. I love that whole yoga practicing farmer living in California who has five goats and no TV. You look at baseball prospects, and you go down a rabbit hole that brings you to yoga practicing farmer. All right. Take a break. When we come back, cultural zeitgeist and the soundtrack of a movie that was culturally significant. I'm Steve Rosenblum. This is Saturday Suckage. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tolerating me. Thank you for texting in with, you know, they have their blunt rotations. They have, they, people called in or texted in with like Mike Tyson, John Stewart, and Snoop. I would not want to be in a blunt rotation with Mike Tyson. Tell me why. I'd be terrified the whole time. If I upset him, I'm dead. I got a punch in my face. Who, have you decided on your blunt rotation? Uh, well, you're in it. But besides that, I got to figure it out. All right. Get back to me on that. Share with the class. We'll take these all. You all have a homework assignment. Submit your blunt rotations, your four names of your ideal blunt rotation scenario to the Wake and Bake Club on Saturdays. If nobody important listened, we'll be back next Saturday or the one after that, whenever they forget. This is Saturday Suckage, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. We have the cultural zeitgeist. Right now, you're doing something for the culture. Baby. Uh do it for the coach. For the coach. Do it. Do it. Do it a little slower. Like. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. B to the is A. That's the anthem. I'll get your damn hands up. I do this for my culture. Joe won the Chiefs. Owns. I think we've really penetrated the cultural zeitgeist. And while we are penetrating the cultural zeitgeist, I still have some Wake and Bake Club suggestions I want to get back to. I... This is hysterical. 773. You got to have Snoop. And you can't have Snoop without Martha. And if you have Martha, you have to have Willie Nelson. And if you have Willie Nelson, you better have a defibrillator. Yeah, there's your your blunt rotation. 414 texture. Only way Tyson can be in your rotation is if you add Bernstein. He's way more likely to piss off Tyson and get punched than me. <clears throat> there you go. See? That's your key, Robbie. That's that's 
630 Blunt Rotation. Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Bob Weir, Keith Richards. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Here we go. I do think this is a really good homework assignment. Yeah. I, I like this. I have my list down now. I like this. So, in the cultural zeitgeist, Friday was a four-year anniversary of one of hockey's most delightful moments. Since we're talking hockey, this was an e-bug win. You know what e-bug stands for, Robbie? Electric bug? I don't know. E-bug, emergency backup goalie. Both Carolina goalies were hurt. They needed an emergency goalie. They're going to play the game in Toronto. So their goaltender that night was David Ayers, 42-year-old David Ayers. He was the Zamboni driver for the Toronto Marlies, the minor league team in Toronto. And he filled in against the Leafs. And he beat the Leafs 6-3. E-bug goalie win four years ago last night. Now, it was thought that he was the first e-bug to have a win. Research revealed that several other amateurs did so in days before teams carried two goaltenders. So he was the first e-bug to get a win with the, in the two-goalie era. So he took the ice against his beloved Maple Leafs. He wore a Marley's face mask, blue and white goalie pads, Toronto Maple Leafs colors. A mitt and blocker with Le- with a Leafs t-shirt beneath his Carolina sweater because he was, after all, the Carolina goalie. And he was named the game's first star. Omaha! 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 So, last Sunday, I didn't realize this. We would have talked about it last week. But, no, uh-uh. 39 years ago last Sunday, Simple Rhines. Kids, ask your parents. Simple Minds released the number one hit. And here it is. Makes you feel like the Breakfast Club is just coming on, right? Simple Minds, 39 years ago released Don't You Forget About Me. Songs featured in the opening and closing scenes of the Breakfast Club. In the closing scene, right? You see the Breakfast Club, Robin? Love that movie. All right. Tell me about the ending. Closing scene. Go. He raises his arms up. He left. Arm. 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 John Bender. The iconic pose. Fist into the air. I think he's still serving in Saturday school. I still, you, you mess with a bull, you get the horn, mister. So, I mean, he got that iconic pose and he got to kiss Molly Ringwald. It's a good night. Good That's a win. Work. It's a good movie's work. Yeah. Omaha! 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 
So if you have a self-addressed stamped envelope and you send it to a particular Colorado address, you can get a teaspoon of sourdough starter that has been kept going continuously since, what would you guess, Robbie? Do you know this thing about sourdough starters? I do not. So you make sourdough bread, you need a starter. That's what it's called. It's a starter. And then you get a little of it, and then you make your sourdough out of that. The starter is, is there, and it's always there. And it seems regenerative, but you need your sourdough starter. And they apparently stick around for a while. And you can get a teaspoon of this sourdough starter if you send a stamped envelope to this Colorado address. I'll give you in a minute. Do you know how long this has been going on, this sourdough starter? Uh, I'm going to say 50 years. I'm not sure. Since 1847. That's more than 50. Yep. It's good. Look at you counting. Look at you. You don't suck when it comes to counting. By the way, just so you know, because it's this show, it's Saturday's suckage, and we've determined that the White Sox, the Pedro Gafol's juvenile acronym FAST, stands for fielding a sucktastic team. Could be fielding a sucktacular team, your choice. That's FAST. Saturday suckage, sponsored by the Chicago White Sox. Yeah. So anyways, you can get that starter, and you can get it from a website, that looks like you will not believe. You have to go to this. It's called carlsfriends.net. That's the address. And it doesn't look like anything you've seen in the last 25 years. Seriously, this is one of the, talk about going old school. carlsfriends.net, and you can see what websites used to look like. And you can get a teaspoon of sourdough starter. So I started this a couple months ago. People got angry. So, yeah. Let's keep it going. Time for the 14th greatest riff in rock history. China Grove, Doobie Brothers. The Doobies are a favorite of the Wake and Bake Club. Way back when the Wake and Bake Club was co-founded by Mark Grody and I, and Zach Withers, the erstwhile Zach Withers was producing the show, and we did have kind of a part of the open that included Doobie Brothers. And this was, I love the Doobies back before Michael McDonald ruined them. Some people I know inexplicably like Michael McDonald, I do not. He ruined the Dewey Brothers. That was the guitar sound I wanted. China Grove, 14th, 14th greatest riff. And that's my list. If you don't like it, you get your own radio show. There might be one available next Saturday. Who knows? So I remarked last week during the Wake and Bake Club news that Idahoans are dumb people for what they're doing with pot. Like, you get a five-year sentence for a joint, something stupid like that. And if you have less than three ounces, you're still going to get fined under a particular bill, $420. 
See what the clever legislator did there? 420? Yeah. So, so here's something else for Idahoans. Setting aside the argument, you know, for best hamburger in the world. Narrator's voice. It's in and out double-double, with cheese, animal style, everything made fresh and to order, and to people who hate it. Thank you. I need you people to continue hating it. I love you people who hate it and think it's overrated. Avoid it. Tell people it's overrated because it helped keep the lines down. But that's not what happened in Idaho. When they opened their first in and out the drive through time was eight hours. I love in and out but I'm not as dumb as Idahoans. Is there anything you do for eight hours, to wait eight hours for? Oh, God, only in my dreams. And with that, we are going to say goodbye to Saturday Suckage. If nobody important listened, we'll be back next week. Bobby Triano, you brought us Jeremy Roenick, Matt Spiegel, and Jonathan Jackson and Slapshot, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 